The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Today we're in some deep waters, John chapter 5. So if you would be so kind as to pray with me and for me. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity Again, to come to gather around your word, I pray, Jesus, that you would shine, ultimately that you'd be glorified. Father, I hide in in you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do the work that only you can do, Lord, to break chains, to convince, convict, to draw, to comfort, to heal, to nurture, to feed your sheep, as only you can do, Lord God. So I humble myself, and I pray, Jesus, that you would be mighty tonight or today, in your holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, John chapter 5, which is very unique. The book of John, we have four Gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, I'm sorry, three of them are the synoptics. That means they're similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John is very unique. Well, John, of course, is the beloved apostle. But John's book is written primarily to underscore the identity, the deity, the lordship of Jesus. I mean, it starts right out of the beginning in chapter 1 where he talks about the word became flesh, dwelt among us, the word was with God, the word was God. So he establishes right off the bat what his intent is with regard to this book. And John is very precious Uh, When you look at the gospel accounts, you'll notice that Jesus is betrayed by the majority of his disciples, but it is the Apostle John who stays true to Jesus to the very end. Jesus, from the cross, looks down at his mother and says, Mother, behold your son, and he looks to John and says, John, behold your mother, which to me is absolutely insightful as it relates to the relationship that Jesus and John had. So this chapter 5 is fantastic. It stands alone because contained herein, we're going to see, really, Jesus talking about himself, revealing who he is in such a way that there is no other section of Scripture in the entire New Testament like this. But to get there, let's remind ourselves of what Pastor Colin taught us last week. We started off in John chapter 5 with an invalid, a cripple who was at a pool of Bethesda, wanting, waiting for 38 years for a miracle. Jesus comes along. The man doesn't even know who Jesus is. Jesus ministers a creative miracle at this pool The man goes, eventually it is revealed to the religious establishment there at the time that it was Jesus who did this miracle, and he did it on a Saturday, which would have been their Sabbath. So look with me. Again, if you don't have a Bible with you, in front of you, under your seat, you have Bibles. We're in John chapter 5. I want to read verse 16 by way of review before we jump in this morning. It says, and this was why the Jews 
were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. In other words, you're accusing me of working on the Sabbath. Well, guess who's working? God the Father is working on the Sabbath. He's my Father, and I am working in concert with him. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God, how dare he, his own father, making himself equal with God. So they accuse Jesus of a high crime. First, they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. He responds. Then they accuse him of blasphemy, a violation of the very first commandment that here's this, they think, this mere mortal claiming that God is his father, thereby asserting that he is equal with God. To them, this was worthy of the death penalty, capital punishment. They wanted to kill Jesus on account of this. Now I want to pause this morning because that same profession that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Lord, today results in capital punishment for many throughout the world. We call these individuals martyrs. Now, according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, which is a research arm of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and this staggers me, according to them, 900,000 Christians were martyred for this profession of faith in the last decade, 900,000, which if you do the math, that's 90,000 a year. And if you bring it into our context this morning, that means by the end of our service, another 10 will enter into glory, will hear well done thou good and faithful servant, because of this profession of faith. Needless to say, y'all, I I think we stand on holy ground when we approach John chapter 5 this morning. This is ground that is soaked with the blood of martyrs who've held fast to this profession. There are few doctrines that are more important than what we're going to cover this morning. The Christian faith is built upon the foundation of what we are going to learn or review today. So here's Jesus. He's faced 
with this accusation by the religious establishment of his time, he's aware of the ramifications and possible consequences. How did Jesus respond? What did Jesus say about himself? We're going to look at these next several verses, and we're going to see that Jesus makes a series of powerful statements about his true identity. Now, these are the words of Jesus. He's testifying about himself here. Later on, he's going to point to external testimonies. But first, we're going to look, and this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus says about himself. Look at verse 19 of John 5. So in response to this accusation, says Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I'm reading from the ESV. He says, truly, truly, he says, truly twice, meaning he's really wanting to make a point. If I'm in the classroom, it's like me saying, pay attention. This is critical content that you need to know. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise, like father, like son. For the son loves, interestingly, that word loves most of the time when it refers to God, the father's love toward his son is the word agape, even when it refers to us in God's love toward us. For God so loved the world, he agaped the world. Here, John chooses to use the word phileo, which is familial love, brotherly love. Sisterly love, the love between a mother and a father, family members, Philadelphia, think of. I believe that he's underscoring the Trinity. And let me pause to say here is the historic, classic, biblical definition of the Trinity, just to set the record straight. We believe that God exists one person, in essence, or one In essence, one God in essence, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One in essence, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each one is eternal. Each one is co-equal with the other. So one God in essence, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person is eternal Each person is co-equal. That is the historic Christian biblical definition of the Trinity. It says, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In greater works than these will he show him. Why? So that you may marvel. So here Jesus is making several claims in the next verses with regard to his true identity. And first and foremost, he claims that he cannot act independently of the Father. This is really an immediate claim of deity. He says, I can, the Son can do nothing of his own. 
He acts in unbroken union with the Father. In his deity, he cannot act independent of the Father. So right off the bat, he refers to himself as the Son. They're accusing him of that. So he doesn't in any way run from that. He embraces that. He doubles down. And he says, I cannot act independent of the Father. He also claims that he will not act independently of the Father. Look, it says, but only what he sees the Father doing. So though equal with the Father in deity, in his humanity, Jesus humbles himself to become a servant, which is an amazing idea, truth, how God condescended from heaven to come here and take on human flesh and dwell among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2.5, having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we ought to have the same attitude in us as Jesus had, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word in Greek, grasp, means held on to. It implies that there is equality, that Jesus did not feel like he had to hold on to that, grasp that. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. It says we ought to have that same attitude. If God the Son would serve, so ought we to humble ourselves and to serve others. That's an amazing, amazing truth. He also claims that his work is a perfect reflection of the work and will of the Father. He says whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Do you want to see the will of God personified, look at Jesus. You want to see the heart of God, look at Jesus. Do you want to see the work of God, look at Jesus. That's what he's saying, which is amazing when you think about it. Practically speaking, and I want to speak to us Practically for a minute, this relates to several of us who may be in the midst of making decisions, trying to determine what the will of God is. And I'm going to propose to you a concept, and that is the will of God ultimately is a person, Jesus. Now, listen, let me give you an analogy a personal analogy from my own life. I have a genetic disease uh, that renders me night blind. I've known it from when I was a kid. We'd go out and play basketball at night. My friends would see the ball coming. I never did. And eventually it was diagnosed and verified medically. So I'm completely what is kind of Misty to you could be pitch black to me. 
which is why I'll occasionally bump into things and so on. And that's just a little bit about me. But let me tie this into this idea that the will of God is a person, not necessarily a road map. A couple years back, Daisy Isaiah and I are in New York. It's the 4th of July. We're at my cousin's house. There's an event going on. Family members were out in this big open field. It had rained like the night earlier. It's muddy and dirty, and there are roots that are sticking out of the ground. And we're in there, and there's all these people and fireworks and things, and somehow I got lost. Often I'll hang out with Daisy, and she's my guide. She kind of knows my situation, so she holds my hand and so on. But I got lost, and I'm out there in the dark, and I'm literally like I can't see my hand in front of my face. And I'm starting to panic for a minute. Like, where do I go? I don't want to take a wrong step, fall into something, injure myself, get further lost. And my heart starts to beat. And just as it does, two strong hands reach out and grab my shoulder, both shoulders. And I hear my Uncle Larry's voice. He says, Tommy, that's what my family calls me. Tommy, I'm here. I got you. I said, Uncle Larry. He said, Tommy, just hold on and follow me. We often, when it comes to the will of God, we want a road map. We want like Google Maps, right? We want an address typed in, take a left over here at Central, go down first, you turn it here in that parking lot, go there, there's a greenhouse across the street, park in front of the greenhouse and walk down. That's what we want God to reveal to us. Sometimes, by the way, he does. Think of Saul, Paul, and Ananias in Acts 9. He tells Ananias Paul's address. He lives on Straight Street. So there are times when God gives you specific details. He does. But many a time, here's the deal. And here's what Jesus is capturing here. Here's how the will works. Abide in me. Tommy, hold on. I know where you're going. I know where I want to take you. I can avoid the pitfalls. I can bring you to safety. Your job isn't to look for specific details all the time. It's not Google Earth. Your job is to see me. It's to pursue me. It's to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, the details will take care of themselves. So when Jesus says, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise, that's what he's saying. You want to see the will of God? Come to me. Abide in me. And I am the will of God personified. He also says in the same verse, he claims that he has unlimited access 
to the mind of God, the Father. Look at it. Jesus says the Father shows him some things that he himself is doing. See, some of y'all ain't looking. What does it say? All things. I don't know about you, but I don't know all things that the Father is doing. I'm not omniscient, but Jesus, again, 100% God, 100% man, in his deity, he knew. And there's a mystery to this, an awesome mystery. Now, what does that mean for you and me? A, referencing to what I just said, he knows all that's going on around us, how they interact and so forth, every decision around us, every possibility. So when we are in him, directed by him, truly in the center of God's will is the safest place to be. Because he doesn't have a bird's eye view, he has a God's eye view of what's going on. He knows what's going to happen, he knows what's going on across the globe, how they all interact, all the different decisions. He's aware of every nuance. So there's safety in the will of God. Also, you know what this means? If any man lacks wisdom... Let him ask. He's the source of it. Jesus is. The same idea about abiding in him when it comes to the will of God, that also relates to wisdom in decision making. Because he knows. He knows. A practical example. I believe there are times where you have to make a decision and we want an emphatic yes or no. And oft times what the Lord will say is wait. Those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Now, why, Lord, would you want me to wait? Possibly he desires your heart and your fellowship more than he wants to just give you an easy answer. He wants you to pursue him. He wants you to know him. So he's drawing you deeper. He's calling you deeper. So wait and draw nigh unto me. He knows already what the right thing is to do. Shows him all that he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Now, the greater works, we're going to continue, verse 21. Within the text here, refer to life and judgment. So let me read verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life or gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom... Interestingly, he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. 
Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, there it is again, verse 24. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So here are several claims. Claim number one here. Jesus is claiming that he is the author and the source of life. It says, so also the son gives life to whom he, referring to the son, will. Psalm 139, 13, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Acts 3.15, Peter addressing the crowd says, you killed who? The author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So the reason that we cherish life is that we serve the author and the source of it. Life is precious. Our Savior is the source of life. It's also amazing to me that relates even to those who are accusing him. The very lips that accused him, condemned him, he formed. The very hands that drove the spikes into his wrist and feet those hands he created. That's, again, mind-blowing grace. That he would allow that, that he would put himself under that because of his great love on this rescue mission that he was on. His great love toward us. Those who he created in the womb. He tolerated, he allowed to abuse him, ultimately to hang him on a cross. In this case, to pursue to kill him. It's another thing about this that I enjoy. Doesn't matter how young you are, or how chronologically speaking old you are, you're still his baby. You're still his kid. He knew you in the womb. He formed you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he cares for you. Oh, wow. He also claims that all judgment, he says, has been committed to the Son. And also that we have eternal life through the Son. So Jesus here says, essentially, you know, Jesus is the standard by which we are all measured. He is the measuring stick. All right? He's perfect. He's righteous. And so even in our sanctification for those of us who are believers, what is the goal of your sanctification? to be conformed, to be more like like Jesus. 
He's the measuring stick. He's the standard whereby we judge ourselves. He's the righteous king. Also because of him, we become the righteousness of God in Christ. Because of his atoning work, we now take on his righteousness as imputed to us. And when God sees us, he sees Jesus. He sees his son. Jesus claims that failing to honor God the son means that it is impossible for one to also honor God the father who sent the son. Listen, I've got to say it because this is what the scriptures teach. According to this, all religions are not worshiping the same God. Listen, you cannot be wrong on Jesus and right on God. I'll say it again. You can't be wrong on Jesus, but right on God. Now, if you Googled my name, Tom Bradwell, there are a lot of dudes out there named Tom Bradwell. I'm sure there's one out there who's blonde-haired, a lot of it, blue-eyed, probably, five foot one, 135, and speaks another probably really exotic language. Now, if you were describing that guy to my wife and said, that's your husband, she'd say, no, it isn't. My husband's a lot better looking than that. Our reality is, same name, but not me. There are a lot of folk out there claiming that they represent God. But if that God is not the Lord Jesus, if he doesn't look like, act like the bio isn't Jesus, not God. That's what he's saying here. And that relates to, and I don't want to call folk our, our other positions out. That's not the intent this morning. But there are several in today's pluralistic society where we've so watered down, you know, we use terms like faith, you know, generic God, I think sometimes small g God. You know, reality is, as believers, what distinguishes us is we affirm wholeheartedly by faith the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's, these aren't my words. It's what he said. I'm, I'm not making this up. He said that failing to honor God the Son makes it impossible to honor God the Father. Look at John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look at 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets 
have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So far, Jesus claims that he cannot and will not act independently of the Father. He claims that his work is a perfect reflection of the work and will of the Father. He claims that he has unlimited access to the mind of God the Father. He claims that he is the author and the source of life. He claims that all judgment has been committed to the Son and that we receive eternal life through him. He claims that failing to honor God the Son means that it is impossible for one to also honor God the Father who sent the Son And now his final claim about himself. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Son of man, you can find in Daniel, messianic reference there, very powerful. Verse 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. His final claim in this section, Jesus claims to have authority, have the authority to execute final judgment over all who have ever lived and to determine the eternal state of each person based on their relationship with him. Yes, he is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's also the lion of the tribe of Judah, the soon coming king. His first coming came as an infant in a manger. When he returns, he's coming with the armies of heaven in tow, riding a white horse. Look at this, Revelation. Again, who wrote the book of Revelation? John, same author. This time, John's 90-some-odd years old. He's exiled to the Isle of Patmos, a political prisoner. He's the last man standing of the original apostles. And Jesus, his Lord and Savior, comes to him and reveals these things to him. This old man on this island. And he's describing what he sees. Look at this. Then I saw a great 
white throne in him who was seated on it. The him there clearly from other verses refers to Jesus. Listen, from his presence, earth and sky fled away in no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, ultimately what they had done with Jesus, whether they had received Christ in his sacrificial atoning work or not. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus, the lamb, and the lion. Verses 30 to 47, Jesus turns the attention away from his own testimony about himself, and he gives what are referred to as the fourfold witness to his deity. We're not going to go over that. We don't have time this morning. But essentially, he points to John the Baptist bearing witness in verses 30 to 35, the works of Jesus bearing witness in verse 36, the Father bearing witness in verse 37 to 44, and the Scripture bearing witness verses 45 to 47. I want to kind of conclude by asking a couple questions about the implications to the deity of Jesus. In other words, what does the fact that Jesus is God mean to you and to me this morning? First, and please, Lord, grant us ears to hear. Because Jesus was God and sinless, his sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy the justice of God for all sin. A mere mortal could not meet that requirement. There's a chasm that developed between man and God. We have violated God's laws. We have sinned against our creator who has been lavish in love toward us. And if you've ever been violated, you know, especially really violated, that person can come and say, I'm sorry, but often it takes more than just a sorry to satisfy that sense of justice. Well, this chasm was so great between God and man that mere mortals, a mere mortal could not satisfy that. If just a human being died on the cross, 
It'd be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You wrong me, take a life, I may require your life. But what mere mortal, what mere human being could satisfy the justice of God for the sins of humanity, past, present, and future? Only God himself in the person of his son who stepped out of heaven, out of glory, condescended to this earth, took on himself human flesh and paid the penalty for our sins. The incarnation, the deity of Christ, has purpose as it relates to the atonement, to our salvation. Also, the deity of Christ means that God entered our humanity and is familiar with our struggles, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's listening to Tim Keller. He's a pastor out of New York. And you'll note that in, I believe it's Isaiah 53, refers to Jesus as a wonderful counselor. There's a prophecy. And Daisy and I even looked this up in the original. Tim Keller brought out a wonderful point. He's like, who are the best counselors? Those who've been through it. It's not that those who haven't been through it can't counsel. There's a skill to it. You know, there's a degree of skill involved. But the very best counselors are individuals who've gone through what you've gone through and come out of it on the other side. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be tired, tortured. He knows what it's like to be homeless. He knows, I shared this some weeks ago, we believe, you know, Joseph probably died at some point. I mean, we don't have much record of him past the age of 13 or 12 for Jesus, So in all likeliness, Jesus was at the funeral of his father. I've been there. Jesus knows. So the incarnation means that you and I have a high priest who intercedes for us, a wonderful counselor 
who knows what you're going through right now. He knows. That's the incarnation. That's powerful. In last, and I close with this. We're going to see a movie tonight by the English author and Christian apologist, thinker, Professor C.S. Lewis. And he said the following. He said, when you look at what Jesus said about himself, and we just did in John chapter 5, he believes you're left with three conclusions. Conclusion number one is this man who claimed to be God, and again, we talked about those seven claims, which... You all heard, and we looked at the scriptures, what Jesus said. Either he was a liar, he's lying. Now, if he's lying, take into consideration his life, his ministry, his teachings, his impact on our world historically. Take into consideration the ministry and impact of his followers, the fact that those 11 that were left, because Judas, of course, committed suicide, they went into hiding after the resurrection. There was a complete 180. These guys who were cowards at one moment went on to be martyrs for Jesus. They believed so much, including, by the way, individuals like James, who was his half-brother in Jude. So either he's a liar, or Lewis said, secondly, there's the possibility that he's a lunatic. I mean, we got plenty of folk, I'm sure, in the world today, standing on street corners, proclaiming that they're God. And what we might do, I do, is I just pray for those folk. Not all there. to make these kind of claims that Jesus made. Either you're a liar, either you're crazy, or thirdly, either you are who you say you are in your Lord. If he's Lord, he's cornering us this morning. That means if he's Lord, you and I aren't. And we have to respond to that. You'll hear folks say, well, I made Jesus Lord today. No, you didn't. You may have recognized his lordship. You may have bent, bowed your heart to his lordship acquiesced to his lordship, yielded to his lordship, but Jesus is Lord regardless of your response or my response. So if you're going to accept Jesus, the true Jesus, Jesus as he communicated himself to us, you must Accept him as Lord, which means you bow your knee, which means you humble yourself, which means 
It's his will, not yours. It's his purpose that you live for, not your own. James 1.1, and I end with this. Again, the half-brother of Jesus. We're learning this in Wednesday nights. Here's James opening up the book of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. I mean, if anybody from a humanly point of view knew him, it was Mary, who we know recognized his lordship. And it was this guy, James, who arguably was raised in the same household, referring to him as Lord. And James, dying a martyr's death for that Lord. So where are you at this morning? If you're a believer... Maybe this morning you need to reaffirm, recommit yourself to the lordship of Jesus. Recognize him as Lord afresh and anew, that he is good, that he is God, that he is merciful, that he's full of grace, that he's Lord. If you're here this morning and you have yet to receive, you have not yielded your heart, given your life to Jesus. The scriptures are very clear that you have to believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, that God sent him, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Of course, you recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If that's you, at the conclusion of our service, There'll be a few of us that are going to linger here, and we invite you to come and to join us. Be prayed for. We don't want to embarrass you. We're not asking that this morning. We just want to make ourselves available that if you've yet to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, today could be the first day of the rest of your life. Those of us who have, bow your hearts. He is the king. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.